You're listening to 100 Years of Power. 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 You're listening to 100 Years of Power from The Story Exchange, where we look to history to understand how far women have come and how far we still need to go. I'm Colleen DeVace. And I'm Sue Williams. In the run-up to the 2020 presidential election, six Democratic candidates stepped into the national spotlight. Each one had different policy ideas. Each deployed a distinctive way of appealing to American voters. And each earned their own memorable spoofs on Saturday Night Live. Who can beat Donald Trump? Oh, me, 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 me. My hand went up first. That's not how it works. And the six were all women. It was historic. That's our reporter, Corinne Lesh. I think there was a real hunger to see a woman in the White House, especially after Hillary Clinton lost. The unprecedented number of women running for president, from Elizabeth Warren to Kamala Harris, came on the heels of the 2018 midterm elections. Where there were also a lot of firsts for women. The first Native American women in Congress, Deb Holland and Sharice Davids. The first Muslim women elected to Congress, Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar. And the youngest woman ever elected to Congress, Hello, Bronx and Queens. My name is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and I am running to be your next Congress. But back to the 2020 presidential candidates. At the end of the day, obviously voters didn't buy in. That's Kelly Dittmar, director of research at the Center for American Women in Politics. It's a nonpartisan think tank at Rutgers University. They still had these doubts about women's electability, but I do think it pushes the needle. Depending on how you look at it, that needle has moved a lot or not nearly enough since 1920 when women won the right to vote. I always say that American politics is really stubborn. And what I mean by that is it's hard to change. Particularly the presidency is arguably the most masculine political institution in American politics. In part one of this podcast, give it a listen if you haven't, we talked about the bitter struggle for the vote. In part two, we looked at the slow burn of women's progress since 1920, Today, in this third and final podcast, we explore what the future holds. According to Kelly Dittmar, there's been points of progress, especially recently, that we shouldn't ignore. I think we've seen institutional disruption and change. The six women who ran for president, for instance, were diverse in terms of race and ethnic makeup from white Midwesterner Amy Klobuchar. Here she is on MSNBC. I'm someone from the middle of the country. To Tulsi Gabbard, born in American Samoa, who represents Hawaii. And here she is on CNN. Aloha really means um, that we recognize each other as brothers and sisters. When women have entered our political institutions, particularly as candidates and office holders, they have challenged the masculine dominance the white dominance in these institutions in ways that allow for not only more women and more diverse women to see themselves in that role and therefore run for office and be successful, uh, but also change the institution for the better. I asked Itmar to talk about the modern day resistors, the grassroots activists, scholars, and contemporary feminists who are pushing the needle even further. Who's still taking on this fight and leading it? I think what we learned from both the suffrage movement itself and the way in which the history of suffrage was written 
is that there were huge divisions, many of them along racial lines in the suffrage movement, but also among class lines. When we think about modern day mobilization and activism among women as voters or as activists, we have to be comfortable with the mess. In other words, there isn't a singular leader or even a singular group that's sort of leading the way in fighting for women's empowerment in politics or in policy. But Dittmar says that's something we should embrace. What we have to be comfortable with is the fact that women across diverse communities are working to be sure that their voices and their experiences are part of all of this work. That's messy, of course. But I actually think it's much truer to what is happening and we should celebrate that instead of be worried that, you know, this is a disparate movement. Um, That's in fact probably making all this work stronger. The pressure is on, even for men in positions of power. If I'm elected president, my, my cabinet, my administration will look like the country. And I commit that I will, in fact, appoint a, I'll pick a woman to be vice president. Joe Biden's promise is really heartening to us. That's Joanna Weiss. And I'm president and founder of Women for American Values and Ethics, or WAVE. Her organization, based out of Orange County, California, works to get progressives into office. We believe the trajectory of America is, is kind of following the wrong path right now for true American values that support inclusivity, equity, fairness. WAVE is actually nonpartisan. A lot of Republicans in Orange County feel that the party has left them. Um, The national platform doesn't recognize LGBTQ rights, doesn't recognize a woman's right to choose, doesn't recognize the human impact on climate change. I asked her about Biden's pledge. We feel like that is finally getting a woman in the White House. Biden is already 77 years old, making his VP pick all the more critical. She you know, will obviously be the presumptive nominee in as early as um, 2024, perhaps. So we're, we're cautiously optimistic that we will see very soon a woman in the White House finally. First as a VP, and then hopefully four years and not more than eight years later as the president. According to the Center for American Women in Politics, women have cast almost 10 million more votes than men in recent elections. And the makeup of women in our legislature has increased. There are now 127 women in Congress, 47 of them women of color. But Weiss said she still sees discrimination. As women, I think we are still out there fighting for ourselves. And um, and I think the impact of the right to vote, we still do not have the representation that we need in order to have women's voices truly heard. But she is encouraged by the range of female voices in the fold. Did she name anyone in particular? She did. I think people like Katie Porter and um, being a, a single mom in Congress, that's really important. And so our members are just as happy to advocate for her as they are for anyone. Listeners may remember Katie Porter, freshman Democrat from California, as the one who pushed CDC Director Robert Redfield for free coronavirus testing. Here's a clip of that from back in March. Using that existing authority to pay for diagnostic testing free to every American regardless of insurance. Well, I can say that we're going to do everything to make sure everybody can get the care they need. Reclaiming my time. 
Katie Porter, by the way, is not only a single mom in Congress, she is the only single mom in Congress. Weiss's organization is busy training a new wave of activists. Political neophytes. About advocacy methods in the time of coronavirus. There'll be plenty of digital opportunities or virtual opportunities for engagement. She also talked about passing the torch to her teenage children and their peers. The next generation, particularly Gen Z, are really good at understanding the closeness of everyone in the world. So I think their tolerance for diversity and inclusion is much stronger than any generation prior. I think they don't understand discrimination because they see no point to it. They have friends and people they respect in all industries and in all color, shape, sizes, ages, gender identification, and sexual preferences. So I, I think our kids get it a lot more than their parents do in some ways. We'll be right back after a brief break. How could girly ever be an insult? All the women I know are ones moving culture. What would happen if we all would leave with a little less aggression, more femininity? We have Hi, my name is Simone Swarovski, and I turned 18 this year, so I will be voting for the first time. This is the centennial. It's been only 100 years of women being allowed to vote. So it's such a privilege because not everyone who is allowed to vote is able to. And so if I have the ability to make a choice that can change the future in whatever small way it can, then I think it's my duty to do that. There's power in what you say, in what you say. Own your voice, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. You're listening to 100 Years of Power from the Story Exchange. Welcome back. I want to reintroduce now our producer, Victoria Flexner. Hey, Colleen. Hey. Who brought us the first two episodes of this podcast. So, we still haven't had a female president, and we won't have one this election. That's right. So, where does this leave us in terms of women's progress, 100 years since women got the right to vote? Well, let's not forget, we do have a very powerful woman in Congress, and that's the first woman Speaker of the House. Nancy Pelosi. That's Molly Ball. I am the national political correspondent for Time magazine. She's also the author of the new biography, Pelosi, about, well, Nancy Pelosi. The Speaker of the House is the leader of the lower house of the bicameral Congress elected by all of the members of the House. If the president and vice president are both disabled in some way, the Speaker of the House would assume uh, the Oval Office. Meaning she is the most powerful woman in American politics today. And in terms of elected office, Nancy Pelosi is arguably the most powerful woman in American political history. Let that sink in for a second. We cannot settle for anything less than transformative structural change. That's Nancy Pelosi speaking in June about the need for police reform after the murder of George Floyd. And what did Molly Ball say Nancy Pelosi is like? I mean, obviously we all know who she is, but I feel like we know very little about her as a person. Yeah, I was really curious to find out more about this too. What was it like spending time with her? I talk in the book about her being a sort of slightly remote and impenetrable figure 
uh, and that's true even to people who have spent years working closely with her, people who consider themselves personal friends of hers. There's a feeling that you never quite, that even though there are obviously depths there, uh, nobody really gets underneath that, that, that surface. Often a good way to get people to engage is to ask them what they think about the way they're perceived, and she just doesn't engage with that at all. She's, I'm just not interested. It's just a different uh, personality than a lot of politicians, especially because politicians tend to be, you know, so self-obsessed and so uh, interested in, in, in perception. And she's not wired that way. This got me thinking, maybe you have to be wired a different way to be a female trailblazer in politics. She describes herself as a sort of accidental politician, someone who never wanted to run for office, uh, but was sort of dragged into it. And when I first started writing about her, I was very skeptical of this claim. Politicians sort of have to deny that they're as ambitious as they are, but they're obviously ambitious or they wouldn't be there. And so I looked around a lot in her past for some indication that actually she was plotting and strategizing all along. But in fact, there are a lot of points in her career as a you know fundraiser and party operative and political volunteer where people encouraged her to run for office and she said no. That changed when Pelosi's friend, Sala Burton, who was the representative from California's 5th District in the 1980s. She was dying of cancer and extracted a deathbed promise that Pelosi would run for her seat. And then once she got there, she didn't immediately start trying to climb the leadership ladder either. She was more focused on getting on the most interesting committees and doing the most important legislative work. And Pelosi has been vocal about not wanting to advance her position beyond the House, which might seem counterintuitive, but it's actually strategic. She's always said no to running for the Senate or governor, and she's made it pretty clear that she's not interested in being vice president. And that adds to her power a lot because it means that people know that she's not trying to build her resume. That's not one of her goals. Her only goal is doing this job as well as she possibly can. No matter what you may think of Pelosi, after three decades in Congress, she has proven to be a master legislator. The moving of legislation through this large and unruly legislative body is really her skill set. And one of her former aides said something to me that has always been a sort of Nancy Pelosi Rosetta Stone for me. He said, everything Nancy Pelosi does is motivated by this combination of obligation and confidence. You could even call it entitlement. She looks at the situation and she says, well, somebody's got to do something and I'm the one who can do it. I'm the only one who can do it or I'm the one who can do it best. There's definitely a palpable confidence there that's different from male political machismo. You don't want to get on her bad side. Here's Pelosi's daughter, Alexandra, speaking on CNN about how her mother approaches meetings with President Trump. She'll cut your head off and you won't even know you're bleeding. <laughs> That's all you need to know about her. <laughs> but we have to remember that... When Nancy Pelosi got to Congress in 1987, in the 435-member House of Representatives, there were 23 women. 33 years later, we just reached 100. Yeah, even today, only 25% of Congress is female. We have to train women, we have to empower women, we have to, you know, drag them kicking and screaming into the political process. And for whatever reason, it wasn't something that a large number of women felt galvanized to do until 2016. You know, it was called the pipeline problem, this idea that because women don't run for office at the lower levels, then when it comes time for higher office, whether you're talking about the president, the speaker of the house, the governor, the, uh, you know, member of Congress or senator, 
There aren't women who've built up the sort of conventional resume that are ready for that. What does her position as Speaker of the House mean for women? Well, one thing it means is just that now there's been a woman Speaker of the House. Now, I don't know how many little girls aspire to be Speaker of the House. I've heard from a few of them. Uh, but now they have someone to look up to, quite literally. There's, there's just like, you know, so many people talked about with, with Hillary Clinton, little girls looking at and saying to their mommies, like, a, a woman can be president. Now there's proof. Going back to what Nell Merlino, founder of Take Our Daughters to Work Day, echoed in episode two of this podcast. If you can see yourself, you know, if you can see it, you can be it. Politics is about perception. It just was so striking to me how much of the conversation about Pelosi was about the way she was perceived, as opposed to the things she actually did. A powerful woman seems always to be judged not for what she's done, but for how she makes people feel. We'll be right back. You can catch me singing these words in a black other features female t-shirt like Hi, my name is Natalie Chan. I'm from Taiwan, where we protect ourselves from China through our vote. I now live in Brooklyn, New York. I got my U.S. citizenship in 2018. Soon after that, I voted for a New York local election. And I remember it was a mixed sensation of joy and overwhelming nervousness. We as citizens must take accountability for the votes we cast. Only then the society can be truly healed and transformed as a whole through people's voices, through democracy. You're listening to 100 Years of Power from the Story Exchange. Welcome back. I'm Colleen DeBase. I'm Corinne Lesh. So let's look ahead to what is sure to be one of the most unusual and gripping elections in U.S. history. Between the pandemic and the rampant racism that's going on in this society. That's Ronnie Schreiber, a professor of political science at San Diego State University. But I do worry about the voter turnout during the pandemic and people being scared. And that's November when there's probably going to be another wave of cases. So the push for mail-in voting is a really, really important one. Republicans have said they don't like the idea. I think the people who feel more comfortable in the public and doing things tend to be more conservative. So that's, it could affect the extent to which, you know, voter turnout. So that's part of the reason that, you know, the call for mail-in ballots is being opposed by Republicans. While Schreiber has published a book about conservative women in politics, she said most of her young students tend to be liberal, but they take for granted the freedoms that were hard fought and won by previous generations. They've grown up with the right to abortion, right, for example. My students are actually sometimes floored at the thought that they could lose the right to abortion. Which is a real possibility. And like, we're one Supreme Court justice away from that. We gotta keep Ruth Bader Ginsburg alive. Events that have roiled the country this past year will likely be a mobilizing force in November. Black Lives Matter! 
One group that is seldom needed to be convinced of that is African-American women, who have been a consistent voting bloc for Democrats for years. We find ourselves in 2020, everybody vying for Black women's votes um, and attention. That's Glenda Carr. She's the founder of Higher Heights, a political action committee behind the hashtag Black Women Vote campaign. So Higher Heights was born in a Brooklyn cafe right after the 2010 midterm elections. She says there has been a noticeable shift in the way campaigns and candidates approach the same voters her organization is trying to get into office. Oftentimes we will talk about candidates take African-American votes for granted. Um, Most African-Americans identify as Democrats. And so the historical narrative about how candidates reach out to African-American voters, particularly Black women, is they knock on our doors 14 days before an election cycle, like, hey, by the way, there's an election. And I think in 2020, what you'll see is that Black women are demanding our return on our voting investment. And that's in the form of policies that directly impact Black women, our families, and our communities. No longer can candidates just assume we're going to come out and, and, frankly, organize our networks to vote. While it remains to be seen who will turn out for Biden and who will stick with Trump, if history is any lesson, women will demand that their voices be heard, no matter how dire or difficult the reality. I think women are going to be the architects of not only our democracy, but of the redesign of our democracy a hundred years in the making from the 19th Amendment. And I believe that women have always been the defenders of our homes, we've been the defenders of our communities, and we will continue to be the defenders of our democracy. When we first started talking about doing this series to mark the 100th anniversary way back in January... A lifetime and a pandemic ago... It looked like we'd drop these podcasts in the middle of a conventional election campaign. Well, as conventional as it could be, given the current occupant of the White House. There was a possibility that a woman might be the Democratic candidate. But no, it's a race that turns out, as it usually does, between two white men. But is the goal a woman president? The goal, surely, is just real equality. Well, going back to the goals of the first suffragists, it was at least to have control of our lives and our bodies. And as we have seen, much has been achieved, but there is still so far to go. At least in this time of immense tension and uncertainty, we are seeing glimmers of hope. A new generation with new ideals. Mm, And new tactics about how to achieve it. The one constant in dealing with the pandemic and police brutality, global warming, and all the other crises that are threatening our health and safety is that we must vote in elections of all levels, from school boards and city councils to state legislatures, for Congress, and of course, the White House. And women can do that, standing on the shoulders of all the women who came before us, who fought so hard and for so long for us to have this right. The right to vote. I believe in the power of voters. I'm passionate about our right to vote. Elections matter. Educate yourself and know who you're voting for. Cast a vote from your heart. Now is the time to plot, plan, strategize, organize, and mobilize. This is how you can finish the work that the generations before you have started. Don't be 
Thanks for listening. If you couldn't identify some of those last voices, they were Stacey Abrams, former candidate for Georgia governor, Congresswoman Deb Holland, Senator Kamala Harris, Terrence Floyd, brother of the late George Floyd, Senator Elizabeth Warren, Killer Mike, the activist and rapper, and former First Lady Michelle Obama. This has been a special project from The Story Exchange, a nonprofit media company that provides inspiration and information for women entrepreneurs. If you like this podcast, please share on social media or post a review on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. And visit our website at thestoryexchange.org where you'll find news, videos, and tips for women business owners. And we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line at info at thestoryexchange.org or find us on Facebook. I'm Colleen DeBase. This episode was reported by Corinne Lesh and Victoria Flexner. Sound editing provided by Nusha Balian. Assistant sound editor is Noelle Flago. Our mixer is Pat Donahue at String and Can. Executive producers are Sue Williams and Victoria Wong. Our thanks to Madam Gandhi for so generously allowing us to use The Future is Female as our theme song. The song Nearlight, performed by Oliver Arnold, is courtesy of Erase Tapes Records and Cobalt Songs Music Publishing. Don't be